Good morning. It is good to be with you again uh, this morning and to uh, share time and fellowship around the Word of God. I was giving some thoughts in light of uh, the events of that we remember yesterday and uh, the events of these last weeks and months and uh, even years wondering what, what should we do, what, what should we talk about, what would be helpful. I was giving some thought to sort of the progress of the New Testament. Uh, we begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling the story of Jesus, his birth, his ministry, his life, his uh, miracles, his confrontation with the Pharisees, all his teaching, ultimately leading to his death and his conquering death and resurrection and ultimately to his ascension. And, and sort of the New Testament progresses from there through the book of Acts, giving us the story of the planting of the church with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Uh, some 10 days later, he sends the Holy Spirit uh, in Acts chapter 2 at uh, Pentecost. And, and we have the coming of the Spirit, the equipping of the disciples, now called apostles, who will uh, begin to spread the news and share the news as the Spirit is poured out, uh, first in Jerusalem, and then ultimately beyond uh, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and even as Acts 1-8 says, to the ends of the earth. And, and, and so the New Testament starts with this marvelous story of Jesus, our Savior, a fulfillment of so many Old Testament passages, and then the planting of the church and the beginning of the spread of the church. And then we have all these letters, the letters of Paul that he writes to the various churches and various places where he's visited and, and uh, served as church planter and missionary and evangelist and discipler. A and then other letters as well, uh, Peter and so on. A and as we get through uh, these letters, as we look at them sort of chronologically, you, you have the beginnings of the church, the founding of the church, the spreading of the church in light of the impact of the gospel. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of the gospel message. And, and, and as the church becomes more established, we'll ultimately uh, lose Paul. Uh, our understanding is he was beheaded in Rome. We'll lose Peter to uh, upside-down crucifixion in Rome, in Rome, according to the uh, earliest histories, not recorded in Scripture, but the earliest histories that we have. And, and yet other, other um, Bible book writers like John live on. And so as we look towards the end, the last books that are written— there's a problem that begins to be addressed in some of those last books, and that's that there's now problems within the church. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the, the, the life of Jesus, and if you will, if I could call it this, the founding of the church, that Jesus, you remember Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You have the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2, you have the Holy Spirit being poured out in the, the beginning of the planting and the spreading of the church, and you have all of Paul's missionary journeys and so on. But by the end of the New Testament, you're beginning to have problems in the church. And John writes his three uh, epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, towards the end of that first century, beginning to address some of the concerns that we have, a and other writers as well. And so I was drawn <clears throat> to the book of Jude, the second last book in the Bible, which also addresses, much like John does, some of these early problems in the church. And I thought that might be a good thing for us to look at in light of Jude message as to what do we do when things are going wrong? What do we do when culture looks the way it looks today? What do we do when right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right and, and, and those types of things? And, and, and maybe that early church, the, the, the early problems in the church that are getting addressed uh, are helpful for us to see where we go from here. And so that's kind of the thinking behind what I hope we can look at uh, this morning, if you can make your way to the book of Jude. Uh, I would say Jude chapter 1, there is only one chapter, so your Bible may or may not list it as chapter 1. Um, we'll just go by verses, you'll know we'll, 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 we'll be there and uh, we'll move on from Jude. But um, so, so Jude is interesting, but we don't know a lot uh, about the context. Uh, Jude is... Well, Jude had a difficult home situation, if you know anything about his home situation. His father was named Joseph, his mother was named Mary, but he had an older brother who thought he was God, right? And that's, that was hard on Jude. And multiple times in the New Testament, we're reminded that the brothers of Jesus 
didn't believe Jesus, didn't believe his message, didn't believe who he was. And I sympathize with them. I have a brother who's 18 months older, and I'm not sure he went as far as to say he was God, but he, he, he certainly thought he was more important than I was, at least in my mind and so on. And so Jude and, and the author of James, both brothers of Jesus, both the children of Mary and Joseph, weren't followers of Jesus or believers in Jesus through his ministry, but both came to faith after his death and resurrection. As a matter of fact, Paul points out a specific meeting between Jesus and James. James would be Jesus' oldest brother. Jesus is the oldest, his oldest stepbrother, if I want to call it that. I'm not quite sure what the right way to refer to that is. But that, that James ultimately comes to faith. And of course, we have the wonderful letter, the epistle of James, being written. And, and now this one is Jude. We know more about James than we do about Jude, and it's just not a lot known as to precisely when he wrote or, or precisely who he was writing to other than w- what we see you know, within the letter, and, and we'll certainly take that into account. Uh, but nonetheless, the message seems to be very much like John's messages towards the end of the New Testament. Jude is concerned. He's concerned about the church and some of the things going on within the church. And and so he's seen his life, I don't know how to say it, radically change from the home that he grew up in not believing to become a servant and a follower and a faithful uh, believer and, and, and truster in Jesus, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of his sins. So Jude's been through a lot. Uh, in light of however he had to work through the the fact that his brother really was who he said he was. But after that, he becomes this stalwart in the faith who contributes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this letter that's been preserved for us. And so we'll just look at a few parts of it to to, to kind of see what he's saying and sort of get a sense. We're in the book of Jude, um, beginning in verse 1, the second last book in your uh, Bible in the New Testament, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. I wonder what that was like to write, right? I mean, that's what he was, and that's he recognized that, but there was a time when he hadn't, right? And so Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, right? We get the whole family picture in there because he's less known than James. James will ultimately become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be where persecution breaks out. First, uh, after the stoning of Stephen, uh, amongst Jews persecuting uh, the Jewish Christians there, and ultimately persecution will uh, eventually come from the Romans as well. But James is well known because he's the pastor in Jerusalem, Judah's not. And so he identifies himself first as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Uh, To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father— and kept for Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers. Now, we don't know which believers where, but we'll see there's a very Jewish tone to his little epistle, and we won't spend too much time looking at all of that, but he's writing to believers like himself, born and raised Jewish, who are followers of Jesus Christ. More specifically, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And here's his greeting in a traditional form that uh, New Testament authors and really all first century authors when writing letters, this was a form that everyone used, some kind of a greeting. And so Jude's greeting is mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Jude goes on from there. The letter of Jude is strong. it's, It's... There's some anger there. He is concerned about what has found its way 
into the church. And so he has a plan when he begins to write. He's going to write about how great our salvation is, right? And that would have been a wonderful letter had he written that letter. He didn't write that letter. He felt compelled by the moving of the Spirit. Again, our biblical authors are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I felt compelled to write to you to contend for the faith. That is to fight for it. That, that, that is to make that the thing. It's interesting that John will write that as well. In First and Second and Third John, we see John is concerned about some of the things that have found itself found its way into the church. Look how Jude describes them here in in, in this letter that we're reading, uh, verse four. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago uh, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And Jude goes on, and if we were just doing the message of Jude, we'd, we'd just keep working through that. But, but, I, but I thought that's a, that's a good reminder for us as to what do we do when culture, what else can I say, goes, goes crazy? You know, right is wrong and wrong is right, and, and, and things are uh, in complete chaos as far as, what is right and wrong and order and morality and, and, and ethics and, and so on. And, and Jude says that even though he was just going to write a message on a letter on our salvation, how great it is. And it is great, of course, that Jesus would come and, and, and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and give us new life and clothe us with his righteousness. All of that is marvelous. But what he, he is compelled to write is contend for the faith the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. As a student of church history, as someone who loves to see sort of what's going on, first of all, it's sad that this early in the church, in the history of the church, we already have problems on the inside. I mean, we're not even done writing the New Testament, and John is writing about Gnosticism and secret knowledge that has found its way into the church. And Jude here is writing that we need to fight for the faith, the, the common faith that we've all held and, and had from the beginning. And he writes that way, because we've got to kind of think about this. He's writing a letter to people who function in an oral culture. That, that is the way information is passed is verbally. Uh, and, and so he's writing a written document that most people wouldn't be able to read. And so the way the church would have this is generally someone in the church could read and, and would the letter would come forth and they would gather in their homes and so on as they would meet and someone would read the letter and people would hear the letter and, and digest the letter, if you will, communally within the, within the community of, of believers. And so uh, the, the Bible is being written in this time, and again, it's hard to date when Jude was written because we don't know a lot about Jude. We know a little bit about him in the New Testament as a brother of Jesus, but as not a follower of Jesus. Um, but somewhere along the way, he's writing this. The scholarship generally says somewhere in the 60s, and, and that could mean 70s. You know, we, we just don't know exactly. There aren't a lot of things to tell us precisely uh, when it was written. But along the way, in the growth of the church, the planning of the church, the spreading of the church, we now have what do I call it, perversion in the church? We, we, we have what he'll later go on to say, false teaching in the church. We'll have in the church where John will write in the book of Revelation, the church losing its passion, right? Losing its first love. You remember that in the book of Revelation? Church is losing its first love. And so Jude, excuse me, is compelled to write what to fight for. What's worth fighting for? And he says, the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, that which the believers have always believed. And, and, and so the, the, the teaching of the apostles, well written down, Paul would write letters and Peter wrote letters and John wrote letters and so on. Um, the, the teaching was received orally, that is people were read the letters and they received it, they heard it, and, and they came to know it and love it and, 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 and believe it and follow it. And so we sometimes think because we're not an oral culture, we think oral would be inaccurate, right? It kind of seems like if we just remembered things orally, then that might not be accurate, but we write things down, right? We write it down and, and, and then we know that, that we have it. Well, that's exactly what an oral culture would think about a written culture. 
wow, that's crazy. I mean, I mean, they, they have to write it down because they don't bother to remember it correctly. Oral cultures were very, very precise in what they remembered. They're oral. But it's hard for us to think about it that way. And so the faith had spread through the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of his apostles, which taught about Jesus. Does that make sense? So Paul spoke, and first Jesus spoke, and then Paul spoke, and Matthew spoke, and, 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 and James spoke, and John spoke, and Peter spoke, and so on. And people would hear the message, and they would receive it, and they would come to faith. And so there was a common faith that was amongst the church in Corinth and the church in Thessalonica and the church in Jerusalem and whatever happened, the church in Alexandria down in Egypt and so on. There was a common component that nothing was unique in the sense that the the gospel message had been spread and it had been written down but spread orally, if I can say it. And in time, after the book of Jude, in time, they're going to start gathering these documents Someone's going to say, hey, we need to invent a better way than a whole bunch of scrolls, you know, with rubber bands around them kept in a shoebox. And they're going to come up with what they first call a codex, which we call a book. That is, we're going to write on on both sides of the page and we're going to bind it on the left side and then we can flip pages and so on. And so ultimately, it seems the history of the book the invention of the book was a way to hold scriptures together. And so we have Bibles, right? We have books that are all put together and we have all the words. What do we have? We have the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. That's what makes our New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the teaching of the prophets, right? So we have it as a book. They had it as what all churches came to understand. And and that's why if you're wondering about Jude's language here, that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. If they had Bibles back then, what he would have said was that was written in scripture, right? I mean, that's what he would have said. But but what we had was people literally remember Paul preaching and teaching. They literally heard James and John preach. And so that's what they're being entrusted with, and that's what they're to contend for. Okay, so then the question becomes really simple. Okay, contend for the faith. It's a great thing. I was thinking of closing in prayer, but I didn't think you were quite ready because, so what does that mean? Like, like everything? Like, contend for the faith. Which parts need contending? What happens? And, and this is where I'll mention a few things from church history, but, but we're going to go back to Scripture, and we're going to see that this is a common theme that's developed all the way back to the book of Genesis, and that is, that, that is what is central to our faith? If you look at the history of the church, uh, all through history, the church has fought for some very interesting things. Huge division, 1054 BC, between the Latin-speaking Roman-based church and the Greek-speaking Eastern-based church. They didn't really have a central point the way the Western church did. In 1054, they ultimately, amongst many other squabbles, split over who gets to hold the keys to what we think is the church in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Okay, So key-holding, I guess, could be contending for the faith. I don't know who has the keys here for Stone. Carol, who, who owns the keys for Stonebriar? Did... Okay, so so, so th- there we go. Um, if you look at what the church has fought over, it's fought over many things. It's fought over methods and modes of communion. That's been a, a, a hot, w- w- the, w- the type of bread, what, what type of bread, and is it the body? It, it's like the body, it is the body, it's, it's, it represents the body, and, and, and those kinds, types of things. Baptism's a big one, you know, all wet, a little bit wet, wet when you're young, um, dripped, um, poured, you know, type of thing. Who does it? Do, do you, do you, if it's in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is that three drips, or is is that like three dunks and so on? And it's funny, but it's true, right? It's actually true that churches have fought and divided. And I don't just mean one congregation here and one congregation there. In church history, major church movements fighting over methods of baptism and, and meaning and calling the other ones unbaptized, right? Meaning unsaved in, 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 in their way of thinking. And, and so none of that is particularly helpful in understanding what Jude is saying. 
fighting over methods of baptism or types of bread and how to do communion or who owns the keys to the church in Jerusalem in, in Bethlehem where where they think Jesus was was born the church of the nativity and so on uh, crazy things uh, that have gone on through church history what's at the center of our faith that's really my question what do we contend for what matters most you might have a favorite uh, translation, Bible translation. You, you might be a, a New American Standard person or an NIV or the New Living Translation that Pastor Chuck's uses. Wh- whatever it might be, we fight for that. Are people who don't use our translation, are, are they the enemy? Is that what we're contending for? And so, in the end, I think you'd readily agree that those aren't the central issues, that somehow the central issue about our faith has to do back with the book of Jude. Look at verse 1 again, Judah, servant of Jesus Christ. Well, probably that's going to have to be something related to what we're contending for. Um, To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours. These, these are some of the central things that Jude is starting off with that we need to contend for. But, but when we start to think about the centrality of our faith, ultimately, when we look through the history of the church and when we look across Scripture, it really becomes down to what do we think of the cross? Because it's really going to be the central issue for us to understand what happened when Jesus died that we fight for or that we contend for that we hold to be true when everything else is shifting around us here's where the central focus becomes and it has to do with the cross and interestingly enough there's been a lot of debates as to what the cross means why did Jesus die why did he die a moral example? Well, yes, sort of. I, I mean, he, he, he died, and there are multiple passages that say multiple things, but what's central? What do we contend for? Jude will go on. Just look at this briefly, and then we'll, we'll see how this develops across Scripture. Uh, go down to verse 14. Jude's still writing here. And again, he's, he's been very strong in his language, if you're familiar with the book of Jude, uh, about problems within the church with false teachers, with these, as he said here uh, um, in verse uh, 4, ungodly people, right? Uh, Ungodly people who have perverted the grace, they found their way into the church and so on. He has more strong words all the way through. We're jumping over to verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, whoa, we're going way back at this point. Um, Enoch generally stands out for his interesting well, I would say end of life, but not really. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. Like, he seems that Enoch was literally taken up by God. He didn't die. A, a story recorded back in early Genesis here. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, um, prophesied about them. See, uh, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, verse 15, to judge everyone, to convict all of them, Uh, 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 all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all their defiant words and ungodly sinners that have spoken against him. Interesting. We've got a lot of problems in our culture and we have a lot of ways of handling them. One of the key things in handling the COVID pandemic is whatever you think and whatever you believe, what we're fed is fear. That's really important that we need to be very, very afraid. And it's interesting because it's actually the right message to the world. That is, they ought to be afraid because people do die from COVID. It can be very serious. And they should feel fear cancer because that can kill and car accidents and 10,000 other things because ultimately those who don't know Christ ought to be afraid that one day they will die. And look what Jude says. Enoch, verse 14, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. What's he coming to do? What's the Lord coming to do? To judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. 
and of their defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him, that is, against the Lord. At the centrality of the cross is the wrath of God against sinners. And if you think about sinners, then you have to include all of us. That's not just the world. That's all of us, right? We, we are all sinners. And, and, and so at the centrality of what we are to contend for is the fact that someone dealt with the wrath of God for you and for me, right? That's what the cross is. And that's always what the cross has been. And that's what I want to show you this morning to show what it is that we need to contend for, what it is that is most important, what it is that, that is the biggest issue. It's not a political issue. It's, it's not a, a, a health and safety issue. It's not an issue of morality or, or, or ethics. It isn't really about economics. It's about the fact that one day, Everyone answers to God. And so that's really the focus that we need to be reminded of. The typical American uh, um, show, you've seen this show a thousand different ways or movie. You, you have the bad guy, you got the villain, and the villain knows he's a villain. He's done some awful things, bad things, naughty things, illegal things, terrible things, lots of bad things. And so he's running and through the whole show or through the whole movie, uh, the good guys, the, the cops or the detectives or the secret people or whatever are trying to catch him, right? They're trying to catch him. There's a couple of close calls and they almost hear and then, then you get to the end and the end scene's always the same. It's on top of the building, right? And, and the guy's hiding on top of the building and he knows he's bad and he's know he's been a lot he, he's done a lot and, and 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 so he's on the building and eventually the good guys come up and if it's filmed in the south he's they're behind these huge air conditioning units right if it's filmed in the north they're behind these huge heaters either way they they come out and there he is on the edge and he, there's a you know put the guns down or i'll jump and, 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 and the cops or, or the detectives or whoever's chasing here, the people we're cheering for, are like, well, no, no. Because they want to see the person get justice. Don't jump. You, you've done all these terrible things. We want you to get justice for what you've done, which is really interesting. Isn't that what he's going to get if he jumps? <laughs> We, we, we have in the world, that's not justice. We don't fear God. Fear our judicial system. The fact that we're going to imprison you or we're going to whatever it is that we'll do, fine you or, or, or different types of punishment. We answer ultimately every one of us to God. And so, well, it's common amongst the idea that if someone jumps to their death knowing that they're going to get arrested for all the bad things that they've done, that they've gotten out of justice. No, they haven't. They've just finally faced perfect justice, real justice from the one who is the judge. And at the center of our faith is the fact that that's where we all go unless Jesus did it for us. Genesis chapter 3. Let's see how this unfolds. I'm actually going to just quickly peek into Genesis 2. Get to Genesis 3. 12.45. That's what we said, right? <laughs> <coughs> started in Jude, we're in Genesis, there's no chance of us getting to page three. <laughs> Genesis chapter two, God says, uh, just look at verse 15, Genesis two, verse uh, 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or when you eat of it, you will certainly... Would, would Adam have any idea what that word meant, die? He's never seen anything die. He's never seen a plant die. He's never seen an animal die. He's the only person. He's not dead. But the punishment is, if you eat from this particular tree, the fruit from it, th the result of your sin 
is death. This is where death gets introduced. Now let's see a little more explained. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent <coughs> was more crafty uh, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which, of course, is close, but not quite. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit uh, that is in the middle of the garden, excuse me, and you must not touch it or you will die. Again, Eve isn't quite correct in what she's saying, uh, but nonetheless, or you will die. That's the threat, right? I mean, if you eat, the punishment is going to be death. No, it's not. I mean, no, it's, it's, you can see the serpent, uh, you will not certainly die. That's a little severe for fruit eating, right? I mean, fruit eating equals death. Uh, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and, well, whatever that other thing would be, right? I mean, knowing good and evil, that must have been a strange set of words for Eve, good and evil. I mean, I, I know good. Uh, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, which is just unbelievable for fruit, um, (laughs) that that you could think it makes you smart. But anyway, she took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and they ate it. And that's the introduction of death. Death was promised in chapter 2, verse 16, if you eat of the fruit you will die. Death was challenged in verse 4 by the serpent. You're not going to die. You're not going to die if you eat the fruit. You're going to be more like God, which is interesting. Eve made in the image of God is hearing this from a serpent who wasn't made in the image of God. And so this is the beginning of the explanation of death, right? This is where it begins that now death is on the table. Now death is going to be imminent for both Adam and Eve. It's not going to be instant, by God's grace, but it is coming. And, and, and so this is where um, uh, death is, is, is introduced. This is where we begin to see what is the result of disobeying God. It's going to be death. Death is the result of disobeying God. Death is the curse for not following. This is the introduction to what we see today in our culture. Here's where it started. Right? Genesis 2, the warning. Genesis 3, the act of disobedience by both Adam and Eve. Right? Eve disobeyed. Adam disobeyed. They both disobeyed. And death gets introduced. And, and, and we wonder, well, what's God's reaction going to be? Isn't God loving? I mean, a loving God, couldn't he just go, those guys, they never listen. I mean, why can't he just brush it off? Why doesn't he just accept us as we're? If God's a loving God, aren't you pretty good? Aren't you good enough? What kind of God would would accept you as you are? Or if that's too personal, what kind of God would accept me as I am? What kind of God would do that? N- not a perfect God, right? Because I'm far from perfect, not a holy God. Because my life reflects far from holiness. But a loving God would have to have results for actions. Let me just read you some of them. <clears throat> Famous one, Deuteronomy 32, 35. This was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners... <clears throat> Excuse me, sinners in the hands of an angry God. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, his primary passage says, It is mine to avenge, God says. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. The day of disaster is near and the doom rushes upon them. That's God's description of himself. Other ones, here's Jesus in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. 
Romans 1, 18 and 19, the wrath of God is being poured out. This is the Apostle Paul revealed from heaven against all uh, the godly, uh, godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by, by their wickedness since they may be known about God, uh, excuse me, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And obviously Paul goes on in that argument in Romans 1. Here's Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, 5 to 7. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes for for what things immorality impurity greed you thought i was reading my notes that was just the morning newspaper right i mean that's what we live in the fear is not well what if politics goes this way or the economy goes that way or you know all these those are the issue is god the thing that we contend for is ultimately what Christ has done for us. Because interestingly enough, at the center of the gospel, that's the first thing to change. Isn't God loving? Well, we don't want to say no to that. I mean, God is a loving God. But loving to a church that meets down in Houston in an old basketball stadium means we never tell people about their lostness because God is loving. That was Joel Osteen, if you're trying to figure out who that was. <laughs> right? But, but, but that idea, that has become acceptable. That's what happens to the gospel. We don't make the gospel worse. We make it pretty. God is loving. Let's contend for that. God is loving. He's so loving that he hates your sin. That's what love is. And so there's the wrath of God, which comes for all people, unless someone has already taken the wrath of God themselves. And we have a few minutes just to see that. Here is Paul in First, uh, Second Thessalonians 1. Uh, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give you relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. And <clears throat> this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels, and he will not punish those who do not know God uh, uh, excuse me, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And on that day, he comes to be glorified in his holy people uh, uh, and to be marveled at by those whom, uh, uh, excuse me, marveled at by all those who who have believed. This includes you, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, because you believed our testimony as well. So all that to say is when Christ comes back, what we get is the wrath of God. Unless you believe in Christ. That is what Christ experienced. What will that wrath look like? We get a little glimpse of it in Revelation chapter 6. Those who are the world who is receiving the wrath of God, who have rejected Jesus, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Let us die. Let the whole thing just shut down on us. We can't face the wrath of God. That's what's coming, is the wrath of God. Or, for those who have received Christ, trusted Christ, ha have had uh, the Spirit live in their lives because of their confession and their belief in Christ, what they have is the fact that God's wrath has already been paid. The central message of the cross Genesis 3, verse 7. <clears throat> then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Well, that probably went well. Um, I'm not here to really discuss the textile qualities of fig leaves, 
but we see very quickly that they are insufficient, that they're trying to hide. What happens when you're going to face a God who walks in the garden that he created for you? What happens? You feel ashamed of your sin. Everything needs to be covered up, and then they hide, right? That's what happens in the garden, and God comes in, and he, he confronts them, and he curses them. Serpent, woman, man. Here's the serpent's curse, verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because of you, cursed are, uh, are you above all livestock and above all wild animals. You crawl on your belly, and uh, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he that is the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And there's the first sign of hope in the curse from death, right? If you sin, you'll die. That's what was promised. They sin, they're going to die. And in the curse of death for the serpent... God promises that someone's coming, someone of the offspring, let's call it the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman is going to come and ultimately will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so the serpent is now condemned and yet there's a little bit of hope in there as to what that might mean. Well, we get the curse for the woman, we ultimately get the curse for the man, and then we still have the problem that we're still wearing fig leaves. Okay, so we need to deal with that. Uh, Verse 21, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. Huh, wonder how he did that. I'm going to guess there were animals there. You'd have to, I guess to get the skin off, you'd probably have to kill them in front of Adam and Eve. What again was the curse? Well, the curse is the disobedience leads to death, and now they're going to watch it. And someone, an animal, is going to die so we can take their skin and clothe them, which, of course, is the gospel. Someone needs to pay the price. They need to die on your behalf, and that someone will end up clothing you with their righteousness. The first glimpse of Jesus is promised in the seed, verse 15, and then modeled in the death of some animal so that they don't have to wear fig leaves, that they could be clothed, will you allow me to say this, in Christ? That's reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament, clothed in skins, right? Which is ultimately what we need to be clothed in. We have a very short time to turn to Genesis 22. Let's see how this works. Genesis 22. I'm going to assume you know the story, and so we can just work at some of the highlights of the story. Genesis 22. The question is, um, this idea of sacrifice, how does that work? This idea of sacrifice. This animal with killed for skins so that they could wear skins rather than fig leaves. Uh, How is this going to work? Genesis 22, this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, take your son, your only son, uh, whoops, uh, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love. Is that what your Bible says? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, um, my Bible has the story of Ishmael. Does your Bible have the story of Ishmael? Isn't Ishmael son of Abraham? Well, okay. Not sure what, what was going on. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. That's a really strange construction. Isn't it wrong? It's not his only son, is it? Isn't Ishmael the son of Abraham? It's not the son of Sarah, but Ishmael is the son of Abraham, is he not? Huh. Only place that this construction occurs the same way, and there's a few things going on here. This is written in Hebrew. New Testament is written in Greek. Is, uh, is Hebrews chapter 11. Just let me read you Hebrews chapter 11 so you can see what's going on here. Very intentional what God is saying here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who... <clears throat> He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Ah, 
Anyone know where that phrase could be found in the New Testament besides Hebrews chapter 11? John 3.16, right? For God's love the world that he gave, depending on your translation, NIV, one and only son. Other translations often, only begotten son. Huh. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. Promised kids, couldn't have kids. Thought they could figure it out on their own. That's how that whole Ishmael thing came about. No, that wasn't God's fulfillment. Couldn't have kids, had to wait, had to wait. 25 years later after the promise, they have a son, a special seed, uh, an offspring of the woman, if you will, who is going to be the sacrifice, right? That's what Genesis 22 is. Take your son, God said, your only son, that is your one and only son, that is a direct reference to, well, to the one and only son of the father, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him uh, as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Well, what's a burnt offering? Leviticus 1 verse 4 uh, says uh, this. You are to lay your hand on the head of a burnt offering, and it'll be acceptable on your behalf to make atonement for you. A burnt offering is an offering of atonement. You have sin, you make an offering, you kill something. Why? The wages of sin is death. That's what was promised back in Genesis 2 and acted out in Genesis 3. The wages of sin is death, and so an atonement, a, a burnt offering is an offering of atonement. That is, Abraham has sins, someone must die. I know how about Isaac? Okay, so take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Early the next morning, verse 3, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when they had had enough, cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told them about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey and I'll go with the boy over there and we will worship and then we'll come back with you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on the son, on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire in the the knife. If I'm not mistaken, we now have Isaac carrying the wood up the hill. Isn't that what it's saying? Okay, just want to make sure. Um, <clears throat> Isaac spoke up and said to the father, uh, said to father Abraham, father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now listen to what Abraham says. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's what Abraham said, and the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar and took the wood. He reached out his hand and took the knife and was about to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called down to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld to me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket was... A ram. Now, this is a little bit problematic. We started off with the fact that Abraham has only one son, and yet he actually has two sons, right? But as it turns out, his one and only son, his unique son, is the unique son of the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, not the offspring of Abraham and Hagar, the unique son. But, but now we've got something here that God would provide a lamb. And what do we see caught in the thicket? Uh, a ram. Well, I'm, I'm no animal expert, but I don't think those are the same things, right? I mean, a lamb and a ram, they're, they're different. Everyone okay with that? Lamb is not a ram, ram is not a lamb. I don't know what the differences are, but one has horns, don't they? Or one plays foot, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, so, so Abraham looked, and there in the thicket was ram caught in his horn. He took over the ram, sacrificed the burnt offering instead of his son. The Lord called the place, uh, Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. The, 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 the Lord will provide. Again, the Lord did provide. Like, I'd, I'd love to be the editor. Abraham, take your second son, Isaac, right? Get that thing fixed up. A- and, then, and then God will provide a lamb or ram or something good enough, right? Get that fixed. And, and now we have, we're going to call the place God will provide. No, no, God did provide. Did you forget? You remember the ram that you just killed? Right? God did provide. But no, that's not what Abraham says. It says, God will provide. Where does it say that? On the top of the mountain, um, the Lord had provided here. Uh, Abraham looked up. I lost my verse here. Verse 14. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Why is that all in future? 
I mean, that's just strange, isn't it? That they go up Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is kind of an interesting thing. It's really only mentioned one other time in Scripture. You're probably thinking about it, Second Chronicles chapter 3. Um, and, and in Second Chronicles chapter 3, it, just to remind you, it says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That's where God will provide. You see, God never provided the lamb. We had a substitute. See, Abraham had sin and someone needed to die. And God said, how about Isaac? And then God said, well, how would I put someone to die on behalf of Isaac? And it'll be, in this case, a ram. And Abraham says, one day it'll be a lamb. It wasn't fulfilled. It's all in future. It's in future in your Bible, in my Bible, in any Bible, in any other language. It wasn't fulfilled. God provided a ram because he hadn't yet provided. What did John say? Look, the Lamb of God. Where did the Lamb of God carry wood up a hill? When he carried his cross on Mount Moriah. Why? Because what we contend for is the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Not to defeat Satan, though he did defeat Satan. Not because God is loving, though God is loving. He literally died it died to placate the wrath of God against you and I for our sinfulness. And Jude says, contend for the faith, the centrality of the cross message. And when the church wavers from that, Jesus died because it's a good moral example for us. Look at how hard he tried. Or Jesus died as to show us his strength and power. It's all true-ish. Jesus died for the wrath of God because God is loving. Father, we are so grateful that we can come to you and we are reminded that one day, according to Philippians chapter 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you. And we are reminded that our sin has consequences. All of us in this room, all of us on earth, our sin has consequences that one day we will see the wrath, your wrath for our sin. Except that we don't have to, Father, because of the work of Jesus. That's what you have given us and that is what we that is what is worth fighting for in this world, is the reminder that people need to know they will experience your wrath unless their trust is in Jesus. And so, Father, help us to fight for that, to contend for that, to preserve that and save that, to not let that fall away. Father, help us to contend for the faith that was given once amongst all the saints, that Jesus died for our sins, for our atonement, to take our place, to bear the consequence of your wrath for our sin. And in turn, Jesus clothes us with his righteousness, that we stand before you right now spotless and blameless, not because our lives show that, but because Jesus' life showed that. We have so much to be thankful for, Father. Help us to contend for it. In Christ's name, amen.